0: Ahab's father, Omri, created a pact, an agreement with the king of Tyre, and it was a marriage agreement between uh, the son and the daughter in order for there to be peace between the kingdoms. But there's one huge problem with this marriage that Ahab stepped into. The people of Tyre were not worshipers of the God of Israel. They worshipped a god named Baal and his goddess mother, Asherah. These were the gods of the Canaanites, the people of the land, and God gave his people a strict warning from the very opening books of the Bible, saying, don't intermarry with the people of the land, because their gods will become a hindrance to you and your worship of me. God gives them this strict warning, and we see this begin to play out, beginning with King Solomon, David's son, who married foreign ladies who brought in foreign gods and caused his heart to go astray. I do need to pause here because this is a layup for me. This is a lob. We got to understand that our marital choice will influence your spiritual devotion. Okay? If if you're single here today, you've got to hear me. Your marital choice will influence your spiritual devotion devotion. If you marry someone whose God is other than the God that you worship, they will influence you and more often than not influence you away from worshiping God. The the influence is so strong. And I wish I could tell you, I mean, there, there are time and time again as we do marriage counseling with couples, we see many who with tears in her eyes saying, I didn't listen to the counsel that was given to me. She promised one thing when dating. He promised one thing when dating. I thought they loved the Lord, but they were just coming around to get me. And so the only way you could discern through that is time and voice of those who love the Lord around you. And so what happens is when we isolate ourselves from that godly counsel anyone's going to look like a great guy, a great gal, because they're becoming what we want them to be in our eyes, but it's not true in their hearts. All right, that's enough for that one. Ahab married Jezebel, who's known to be a Baal worshiper, and not only that, she then made a strategic plan to tear down all the altars to God in the land. On top of that, she gave the order to execute God's prophets throughout Israel. This is why Jezebel's got that reputation. She murdered God's prophets. And then what he did was bring in her own 450 personal prophets of this king, of this God named Baal, who happened to be the God in their mythology, the God of thunder, the God of rain, and thus the God of fertility. So there was prosperity when he brought rain on the land and there was fruitfulness in the land. That's what Baal did. So imagine when there's a drought in the land because of Elijah and Ahab is there like what's going on? Because the god Baal is not bringing rain because Elijah prayed to his God. We come to verse then 17 of chapter 18 when Elijah finally meets Ahab after 3 years of the drought. Elijah had been in hiding In fact, he was in the middle of a desert. This is a cool story we don't have time to get into. And God sent ravens to feed him. The birds brought Elijah dinner while in the wilderness, and he drank water from a small little brook called the Kidron. Not the Kidron, the Chiroth. And that's how Elijah was fed and cared for. But now after three years, he's ready to come out of hiding and comes to Ahab in 1 Kings 18, verse 17. Would you... Stand to your feet as I read a portion of our text for today. When Ahab in verse 17 saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? How about that for a greeting? Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, this is Elijah speaking, send and gather. All Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and they gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long, can you say "How how long? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. By the way, there was actually a hundred that a guy named Obadiah had, had hidden at that point. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Let me pray here and we'll get diving into this. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us. God, I know that there are some here today, some of us who find ourselves actually limping between two different opinions, right in the fence. Lord, I pray that as we step out of this place at the end of this message, we would also step into your will, God. Lord, I pray that you would give us the ears to hear and eyes to see all that you want us to hear and see, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Elijah tells Ahab to gather all these prophets on a place called Mount Carmel, which is in the northern part of Israel and happens to be a mountain right near the border of Israel and Tyre, where Jezebel was born and raised. It's a fascinating location because it also oversees this valley called the Jezreel Valley. And I know I've said this a lot the last few weeks, and I'm sorry to say it, but I'm going to say it again. We were there at Mount Carmel when we were in Israel and saw the Valley of Jezreel. And you've got to understand something. It was the most greenest field I've ever seen. It was was like a a natural wonder of, of fruitfulness. And there, Elijah's like, let's meet on this mountain this place that you give credit to Baal for fertilizing the land. Let's meet there and see who the real God is. He addresses the people. He says to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? He's not addressing the prophets of Baal at this point, but he's addressing God's people who are now teetering back and forth on whether or not they should serve God or serve the God of the world that they live in. He says, how long are you going to go back and forth? How long are you going to go wasting your life and wasting this precious time that God has given you? It's fascinating. He says, how long will you go In verse there in verse uh, uh, 21 will you go limping between two different opinions? That's an interesting word to choose, isn't it? Limping. He uses it again in verse 26. This word limping uh, carries the idea of hesitating or hobbling. And in fact, it says two different opinions. The word for opinion is also used for, word, for the, the word branch elsewhere. What, what Elijah is doing is, is painting this picture of a bird in a tree popping from one branch to the other, just hopping about as, we, as they were doing with different opinions of people. They, they were hesitating about whether or not they should follow God. You ever seen uh, someone do double dutch with jump ropes? You got the two coming, right? And then you see the person getting ready to jump in. What are they doing? They're doing this, aren't they? They're getting ready to jump in there. You ever see someone just do that for so long, like, hey, you're going to jump in or what, you know? Because if you're not, let someone else go. Uh, Elijah's like, you guys have been going back and forth here, hesitating whether or not you're going to follow God. You're leaping between opinions here. How, how long are you going to do that for? Because we're, kind of, we're getting kind of tired of watching this. They're like hopscotching about their spiritual decisions. And he says, there's basically two options here, guys, and pick one. And I find this remarkable because this is an old passage. Thousands of years ago, this was written. But it comes down to it, there's still only two options in life. If God of the Bible is God, follow him. But if there is another God, follow you can call it bail. you can call it self, you can call it money, you can call it sex, you can call it joy, you can call it whatever you're living for, apart from God. If that is God, then worship that. But, but, but don't be going back and forth here between these two, trying to, trying to string them along. Why, why is there ever a hesitation? Why do we do the, the double dutch stutter step? Well, I think there's a number of different things. Sometimes we just see that there are two different attractive options. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I don't know if I want to follow God because this other option of living for myself sounds really good as well. Yeah, living for God sounds good. So right now I'm holding the two together and they both seem like two equal and equally appealing options. Therefore, I find myself reluctant to make a choice. Maybe that's where you're at today. Not sure of what you want. Or maybe you're holding out looking for better. Say, I'm not ready yet to make a choice because I want to see there's something better than this. Even better than God himself. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of things better than God if you paint God to be a certain kind of God. Many of us see God as kind of a spiritual genie, a Santa Claus of types. And we lay out our list, our wish list of things we want under our proverbial tree. And when we don't get it, we're like, well, what's the good of this God then? Because in our estimation, there's no agreement between us other than I ask and you give. So these two attractive options may be there. But there might be another mindset that causes us to become hesitant. And that's... The option of, we know God is the best option, but we also know he's the harder option. So I find myself wanting ease and living for that. St. Augustine of Hippo, a great church father from Africa, he says "You," he says in a prayer to God, you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. You see, what happens is when we are looking at God saying, God, I know that living for you is better, but I know it's difficult. I'd rather live for myself because that's easy. What we're saying is we're choosing life apart from him, which means we're choosing a restless life. That's a proper thing to understand. Following Jesus does carry a cost. We don't sugarcoat that here at the brook. If you're new here visiting with us, we want you to know that following Jesus is the best thing, as I mentioned earlier, that you will ever do. But that doesn't mean it's the easiest thing you will ever do. There will be challenges. You will face adversity. But we know that same God promises that he will hold your hand through it all, but it doesn't mean he will remove that all. So maybe you find yourself hesitating because of the cost of following him. Maybe you're hesitating because of the fear of rejection from other people. You find yourself really loving people's praise, and you know if you draw a line in the sand to follow Jesus, you're gonna get some rejection. And that thought is is just filling your mind and making you to become a chameleon. So you come in here to this building and you can conform to one way and then you go back to work and conform to another and go to school and you're another. That's hesitating. As I mentioned, notice who Elijah is addressing. Not the people who decided they don't want to live for God, the prophets of Baal, but he's addressing those who are on the fence, those who need vision correction, the people who need to know that God is the best thing that they need. That may be where you're at today, straddling that fence. Maybe you're like, I know I'm following Jesus, but honestly, in all practice, I'm right there on that mountain of Carmel. And so what Elijah does then, he proposes a duel, a classic one, more classic than Burr and Hamilton, better than magic and bird. He proposes a duel between these two gods. He's telling the people, make a choice. So let's, let me make this job easier for you. Let's get two bulls. Let's create and build an altar. You cut up the bull, but don't light it on fire as a sacrifice just yet. I'll do the same. You pray to your God to send fire from heaven to consume it, and then I'll pray to my God to do the same. Whichever God answers, surely that's the real God. And everyone's like, deal. Handshake. They shook on that thing. And so this is where the showdown is is, is presented for us. And so the prophets of Baal go at it first. They begin in the morning, according to verse 26, and they go until noontime, crying out to Baal. Look what they say in verse 26 at the end of it. They say, O Baal, answer us. But notice what it says there. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And then they limped about around the altar that they made. They limped some more. In fact, in many ways, people understand this to be some of their ritual. They had this limping kind of dance, this, this kind of seance of sorts to call upon Baal, and he's not listening to them. He's not answering them. And I love what happens then at noontime. It's lunchtime. Elijah's been there since the morning with them. So he begins to intervene and interject into the scenario in verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to mock them. This is classic, by the way. Look what he says. He says, cry louder. Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or maybe he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. This is classic mockery, man. L- let, me, let me unpack this for him. He's saying, scream a little bit louder. He, he's a God, right? Maybe he just can't hear you. Or, or maybe he's not God. And then he calls into question this God's knowledge, his omnis- omniscience. Maybe he's musing, which means maybe he's reflecting. Maybe he's daydreaming right now. you got, you got to snap him out of it. And then Elijah calls into question his sufficiency. Maybe he's out there relieving himself. He needs to, he needs to let something go. Like th- this, is, this is wild stuff here. Elijah's basically saying, your God's not answering because he's taking a potty break. And then he goes on to question this God's omnipresence. Well, maybe he's on a journey. He's too far away. He's not here right now because he's somewhere else. And then he challenges his power. You know what? Maybe your God just needed a nap. He needed to recharge his batteries. I, I love this. I can't imagine what Elijah would be like with social media today. Can you imagine the memes he would create for the prophet Baal? I picture an outhouse, and it's saying, cry a little louder. Maybe he's relieving himself. I mean, Elijah is here telling them what's going on here. But, but notice, he, he's not just doing this to insult the people as much as he's doing it to expose the counterfeit This is a duel, remember. The point of this is for Elijah not to address the prophets, but the people on the fence. And he's saying, look at this. This God's not answering. So what do the prophets of Baal do? Well, they begin to scream some more. Look at there in verse 28. They cried aloud and cut themselves this time after their customs, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. This is crazy. The enemy's strategy has always been to steal, to kill, and destroy people from the times of old to the present times. And verse 29, And as midday passed, and they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which is near evening, notice, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. What Elijah is helping them see is that their limping about was caused their, their indecisiveness was preventing them to see the real God at work. So Elijah proves one point. Baal is not God. He don't hear. He can't do. He can't even talk because he is nothing. I think about this and I'm like, man, Elijah's got to know something that they don't know in order to mock them like he did. You know what I mean? Like The more you know about something, the more confident you become. And Elijah knows something they don't know. You know what it is? Elijah knows that there is one God and he does not go by the name Baal. And because of this, Elijah is able to be confident. Family, there are many things vying for your attention But if they are not named God or Yahweh, the God of the Bible, they are not deserving of your worship. But now Elijah's got this other challenge. Not only has he proven one thing, but he needs to now prove the other. That his God is the real God. And remember, the way that's got to happen is God's got to send fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice. I haven't seen that happen in my life. Elijah is about to ask God for the impossible. He starts here in verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come near. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. That one, Jezebel, you know, that lady who brought these Baal worshipers, her, the one who tore down these altars, there they are on Mount Carmel. Elijah's like, we're about to restore this peace. We're about to rebuild this altar. Family, I I want us to hear something. God was not going to respond until this altar was rebuilt, until true worship would be restored. You see, that's where where revival for you and I begins, at the restoration of, of worship to God. Since we, as we think about being on this fence, as we think about str- starting new in our faith and our faith journey with Jesus, it begins with worshiping God, but we've got to start over, some of us. Some of us have let our altars of our hearts, this, this place of praise, become falling apart, destroyed. We, we no longer have worshipped God in our private lives. We only do it on Sunday mornings. We, we've, we've let other voices enter our earbuds far more than any voice that represents God. We let other sounds exit our, our car speakers other than worship. And that's not bad to listen to other things, but you got to hear me. What, what is the posture of our hearts? What, what, what are we doing when it comes to worship? We let our lips praise our favorite artists and their abilities far more than we let our lips praise the artists who gave them their abilities. We, we lift our hands for touchdowns more than we lift them for God. And as Bear fans, there aren't a lot of touchdowns. But hear me, if we're lifting our hands and cheering, why can't we lift them for God? See, for many of us, this this place of worship in our lives, of the one true God, is falling by the side. And worshiping God has just become a, a repetition of something we do on Sundays, but we don't do it on Mondays. Or Tuesdays and so forth. You don't have to be in this room to worship. You don't have to be in this room to pray. Your car could become a sanctuary. Your closet could become an altar. You've got to worship the Lord. And Elijah's like, hey, if I'm going to show you worship, we got to rebuild this altar. And so they rebuild it. Elijah prepares the sacrifice. Puts the oxen on the wood, on the stones. And then he tells them to do something that's unthinkable before you start a fire. What's the worst kind of wood to use when trying to start a fire? Wet wood. So what does Elijah do? In verse 33, he tells them, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Verse 34, do it a second time. Again in verse 34, do it a third time. Verse 35, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Elijah, water damaged that offering. Would it burn? He knows something that they did not know. And verse 36, at the time of offering, at the evening time of the offering of oblation, he prays. Praise the kind of prayers that I want us to pray in this new year. He prays with the kind of heart that is reflecting someone who's not on the fence, someone who has vision correction. He says in verse 36, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. What a beautiful prayer. Here, Elijah staring down 450 people who hate his guts right Drought in the land, their God being shown to be impotent. And here Elijah prays, and the very first word out of his mouth is a concern for what? God's reputation. He he says it right off the bat, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God. As we approach our new year, let this be the kind of prayer that exits our lips. God, I pray that everybody would know that you alone are God, that they would see that in me, that they would know this to be true. God be glorified. Second thing he prays for is for himself. Let people know that I am your servant and I've done these things at your word. He's praying for validation, not for himself to get credit, but he's basically saying, God, let people know that it's you that's using me. What a prayer to pray, right? God, would you use me in such a way that people can't help but acknowledge that God is the one at work in my life? Let that be a prayer for the new year. And then thirdly, he prays, saying in verse thirty-seven, "O oh Lord, I let them know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. He prays a concern for the people who are on the fence. God, bring them back. Let us be praying those kind of prayers that God would bring people back to him. I mean, I think it would be a wonderful goal to set it in your heart, saying, God, in 2020, would you give me the great privilege of leading at least one person to faith in Jesus? How about that? Elijah prays this prayer of the impossible. He's praying for people who are idol worshiping. He's praying for that person in his life who many deem beyond salvation's uh, potential. You've got those people in your life. Maybe you were that person in someone else's life. And maybe you're here today saying, I think I am that person who's beyond God's salvation. And you need to know that that is not true. God is a God who can save anyone. What does God do in response to Elijah's prayer? Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God's like, I'm not going to just burn the animal. I'm going to burn the wood that the animal was on. I'm going to burn the stones that the wood was on. I'm going to burn the dust that the stones were on. And I'm going to burn up the water that was in the trenches around the offering. I want you to know that I did this thing. I love how it says, he licked up the water. Like you lick up that plate after you enjoy a good meal. That was me after my mother-in-law's cooking on Christmas. God answers. And then what do the people do? But in verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Remarkable. It started out as a question, how long will you limp between two different opinions ends with those same people that were being addressed saying, God, you're God. Baal is not. You are God. I find it fascinating. That is exactly Elijah's name. The Lord, he is God. Family, God can and will use you to bring about that conclusion in people's lives where they will make that affirmation. But we've got to get off that fence. We've got to make that decision. We've got to get up on that mountain and see things clearly yet again. God uses mountaintop and hilltop experiences to give people vision all the time. He did it with Abraham when he brought him on top of that hill called Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac and then to help him see that it wasn't Isaac that was supposed to be sacrificed. God used that mountaintop to give Abraham that vision. God used the mountaintop, that hilltop in Sinai, for Moses to get the Ten Commandments and see God's glory. God used that mountain, that hilltop here, Mount Carmel, with the prophets of Baal, because God helps us see things clearly on top of mountains, not just literally, but even figuratively. When we're able to step back and see God at work, we can't help but say, God, you are the only one. On mountaintops, we get 2020 vision. When we step out, when we let the noise move to the side, we can see with vision correction. The remarkable thing is, after Elijah leaves this earth, he actually doesn't die. He's one of two people in the Bible who are just taken up into heaven. He comes back, actually, in the book of Matthew, chapter 17, on top of a mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, to meet with Moses and Jesus. And we're told in the book of Luke, chapter 9, that on that mountain, that hill, they were discussing something, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. You know what they were discussing, it says? They were discussing Jesus' departure, which was to take place in Jerusalem. We're able to see that not only has God worked on those hilltops, but he also worked on a different one called Calvary. And on that hilltop, he gives us 2020 vision for what God could do in our lives. Because at the cross, Jesus paid for our sin. And in his resurrection, he conquered death to give us eternal life. And we now have to make that decision. Because spiritual indecisiveness will cause you to limp about and miss out on God's working. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Here I stand at the door and knock anyone lets me in, I will come in and eat with them. He stands at the door of your heart today knocking. He's laid out the two options crystal clear. Will you persist as the prophets of Baal would have done? Or will you just say, Lord, you are God and you deserve all my devotion. Families be the kind of people that pray with that kind of heart. Pray with that decisiveness, for God's reputation, for him to use us and for people's lives to be changed through us as we look into the new year. That's vision correction. For Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, um, for uh, always being so faithful to speak through your word. And God, I, I do ask for any who are here today who find themselves limping back and forth, hesitating to jump all in with you, Lord. God, I pray that they could see you for all that you're worth, see all your beauty, that they would just confess their sins, they would would surrender their lives to you and put their faith in Jesus and live for you. God, I pray that you would be on the top of our New Year resolutions. God, I pray that you would permeate and saturate every goal we set we would say in our hearts, Lord, you are God. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand on our feet, church family and prayer team, would you please make yourself available to the front of the stage here. And as we close, would you, uh, God's moving in your heart, and you just kneel, you need to pray. We'd love for you to come and pray with our prayer team members. Let's sing this closing song with passion and belief in the words that we're saying.